This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Warning, the following podcast has some foul language. You may wish to earmuff the impressionable. Hello, friends. It's Saturday, and therefore, it's the Saturday Best of the Week show. Unless you're not listening to this on a Saturday, in which case, this is the commentary track for Legends of the Guardian, The Owls of Gahul. No, no, it is a best of show. But it's better than the last best of shows, because we've been experimenting with airing a very good segment from the past week. We got your reaction, and some of you said, we like it. Some of you said, I skipped it. Some of you said, you know, I lead a busy life. This isn't the only podcast I listen to. I've been spending a lot of time watching Skeleton in the Winter Olympics. Trivia, not counting swimming. What is the only other Olympic sport, summer or winter, but not para, that takes place entirely on the competitor's belly? What is the only other belly sport besides Skeleton And I got to say, this sport stopped last Olympics. It went from 1932 to 2016, this non-skeleton belly sport I'm thinking of. Anyway, so like I said, we heard your feedback. And what we decided to do was not just give you the best of the week, but the best of all time. We went into our archives and we picked an old segment that still has merit, relevance, a little bit of moxie. So enjoy this best of the week and the best of all weeks. Let us know what you think. And the answer to the trivia question, 50 meter prone rifle. Who knew? Better question. Who cared? Enjoy the best of. Talk to you Monday. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
So Anja Amina is a thinker and an artist who talks about technology and talks about the internet and writes about it. And I read something that she wrote in The Economist where she was pointing out that more than, say, rhetoric or even TV ads, memes, memes are holding sway over politics. And I said, true, true, as far as it goes. And then her book hit my desk and has this great cover. There's a llama. There's a kitten looking over the cover. The name of the book is Memes to Movements, How the World's Most Viral Media is Changing Social Protest and Power. And I said to myself, what a just captivating visual. I'm going to dive into this book. And then I realized, hours into it, I got meme, didn't I? The visual, <laughs> the fast twitch muscle visual is the thing that got me enthralled. So, of course, I had to have her on. Hello. Thanks for coming in. Thanks so much for having me here, Mike. Tell me how you come to this, mostly as someone who was looking at protest and the usefulness of the Internet to give marginalized people their voice. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But it, it really is grounded in my interests in just creativity and social media. Um, I, I used to live in New York and uh, did a lot of social media art performances, I explored how people did creative expression on social media, um, but then got really interesting when I started to see how, how marginalized, disempowered people were then using that same kind of um, affordances and power um, to to advocate for themselves and, and shape uh, um, both national and international media narratives. Are there any stark differences between the use of memes and the internet for information versus disinformation? Um, you know what's really striking? is um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm involved in both. I'm involved in research um, you know, with the book is specifically around activism, especially progressives and anti-authoritarian movements, and then disinformation. And what you see is actually a very striking similarity in how, um, how influence is achieved online. Um, uh, Claire Warren and Hossein Darakshan uh, produced a report called Information Disorder for the Council of Europe, and they noted that disinformation operates based on strong emotions, repetition, strong visuals, mm -hmm. um, the ability to, to disseminate information across networks. And I said, wait a minute, that's a lot of how meme culture works more generally. Yeah. Um, and the, the larger theme of the book is that memes have power and memes can influence people. And so I think it's really, really important that researchers, that people in media engage with it, understand it, um, and um, you know, really dive into how it works. Because if you're not engaging on it, you're basically ceding the meme territory to anyone else who wants to be utilizing it. Right. So if you're um, an anti-fascist uh, government protester, we don't want your meme to be your doctrine, right? Maybe you could point someone to what you believe, but it can usefully get the word out. But if you're also working for, if you're Fancy Bear or Cozy Bear working for the IRA, the, the Russian version, um, the meme could do the same thing in a much more pernicious way. That's right. And, yeah. and I think, you know, your point about the book cover is, is a great example. Um, you know, we, we, we have learned over time not to judge a book by its cover, yeah. to engage, uh, to look at who else is talking about it, who is the author behind it, what are their motivations, who is the publisher, what is the person actually saying. And in some ways, we need a new kind of memetic literacy um, for this age um, to, to understand messages by their meme cover. Right. So if you were to teach a course on this, deconstructing the meme, what would you tell us to look for? Uh, I, you know, in the book, I dive into a few things. One is the, the kind of form, the visuals of it. What, is the, what are the old symbologies that this meme is drawing from? Um, what are the cultural tropes that it's, it's, uh, it's kind of pulling at and what are the emotions it's trying to sell? 
Um, and then secondly is also the narrative. Um, what is the narrative it's building? Yeah. Um, how does it? How is it part of a larger media discourse? And so, um, is it how? In what way is it trying to influence you and um, influence us? And even more specifically, which networks is it really resonating in? Um, who is the audience in this kind of world of many different types of audiences? Um, we have to. We need a more complex understanding of who audiences can be because they can be anyone. Okay, so that would be good. Um, let me take them maybe one by one or a couple of sure. parts of that. It does seem that a lot of memes that are shared can be used for good or ill. Like you have the, it's it's a big screenshot and kind of big words and big bubbles words are around Yeah, the image it. macro. Yeah, image that's right. macro, it's a type right? of very popular type of meme. So I've seen a hundred with the most interesting man in the world, Dos Equis, right? Yeah, that's right. And you could label that something to the right, something to the left, something that's this great truth that needs to be said, or something that's this huge lie. Yep. So then how do I go about that first thing that you said with with understanding the typography, understanding yeah. where it comes from. Yeah. It can be applied to anything. They're very malleable. Yeah, they are very malleable. And that's what makes it really tricky. And because yeah. especially because they move so fast and then they can be shared and understood in different communities in different ways. And so so you take a look at that image, you understand what is the meme culture it's a part of, right? Um, the Dos Equis meme, right? It's it's part of this larger like advertising ecosystem, part of a larger meme about um, about masculinity, about right. about um, about how um, you know what is what it means to be interesting. And then you look at the text itself, um, and uh, and often you know in, in kind of West. And this is interesting because image macros are most common in American and Western meme culture. Um, so you look at that, you look at the font, you look at the story it's trying to tell, and then what are the values it's projecting, um, and how is it resonating? Um, how many likes and retweets? tweets and shares is it getting it's hard to do that i want to i want to note, note that it's really hard to do that but that is how you understand and and deep deep dive into these memes and that's what i do in the book but it seems to me that what the thing that twitter can do is they could let anyone publish a meme but if it's very clickable they could give you the stats about where mm-hmm. this is popular from mm-hmm. so if it was you know the the summer of 2016, you saw this stupid frog that you didn't know what he meant. But if you clicked on the stats and you saw the circle of where this mm-hmm. was coming from, that might alert you that Pepe is not benign. I think, you know, there's this, it's a really important point. I think a lot of the internet right now is designed to take away context from right. um, from everything that's online. Um, and sometimes that's useful. Um, but so much of journalism is specifically about bringing context to work, right? To to messages, to what's out there. And I think platforms have a more important role to play in in bringing back context. Uh, they've been so focused on making things easy to use, to to um, uh, you know, the whole design ethos of of don't make me think. Maybe we should bring back some uh, design thinking that that encourages people to to understand the context in which memes circulate. Yeah. I mean, context uh, is always good. It's always something to embrace. I don't know that the ecosystem, I don't know that the financial incentives are there. Sure, the New York Times, the Washington Post, Mm -hmm. two or three players Mm -hmm. who probably get paid attention to Mm -hmm. by the people who are already paying attention to everyone else. I'm trying to think, you know, will will the nightly news cover a meme and tell you what it means so that our parents or frightened grandparents understand it? Will, I don't know who else out there can step in and become a different organism than they have been before? Because it seems like that's what you're saying. We we know that yeah. the New York Times is going to provide context. Will Reddit do that? Will BuzzFeed do that? You know, will the new purveyors of information do that? That's the big challenge, the big question of today. I think you've nailed it, though. I think it's the, the attention economy is part of what's driving the the lack of context, right? Um, yeah. the, the fact that strong emotions um, drive a lot of what gets us to stay on the internet, um, it's, it gets us to engage, and therefore gives uh, gives data that, that then supports an ad model. It is uh, largely incentivized for emotion, for reaction. And so uh, without a deeper understanding of 
of the business model, um, especially around the attention economy, um, it's going to be really hard uh, to incentivize um, bringing context into into our internet experiences. You, uh, as as you trace, you know your interest in this. You do a lot of work with uh, the protesters against or activists against the Chinese government. Mm-hmm. Um, how'd you get into that? Yes, um, it was uh, back in uh, 2011. I had the the chance to work uh, uh, at uh, the studio of Ai Weiwei, um, working on an exhibition in Korea that he was curating. Um, and uh, But as a result, I was around a lot of the um, activism. Um, and that's actually what got me interested in this topic because they were using memes um, to evade censorship, uh, to shape international narratives about, about what was happening in China. And I just found that such an interesting um, experience that I decided to, to really dive in uh, more deeply into, into this. In this cat and mouse game, this uh, kitten on a treadmill and mouse game, <laughs> is the Chinese government good at suppressing memes online? I mean, we don't want to pat them on the back and say good job, but are they effective in their goals? Steadily getting much more and more effective. So back in 2011, the mechanisms of censorship were um, were humans um, and algorithms, mm-hmm. um, so keyword search terms specifically. And so if you tried to say the word Ai Weiwei on Chinese social media, um, it, it could easily be suppressed because it's easy to find that. And so what activists did is that they used images, uh, they remixed his name, um, they used... You mean they're, they're sort of codes, codes. essentially. That's exactly but right. the Chinese language yeah. or the different Chinese languages uh, allow this probably more than English. Yeah, it allowed <laughs> yeah. for a certain type of remix, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's a tonal language, so you change tones, you change meanings. And so it is part of a long history of punning in, in Chinese language as well. So, uh, so people are just able to mix and remix. Yeah. Um, over time... Uh, the government has hired many more um, censors, um, has improved its algorithms, and and even more importantly, as a research by Gary King at Harvard has really found, is that uh, they're actually employing people to shape discourse online. So I think of it as, yes, they give rise to or they give voice to marginalized groups. But then what happens is all groups see the effectiveness mm-hmm. and maybe they even begin to see themselves as marginalized. Mm-hmm. So now white supremacists are doing the same things that Ai Weiwei did. Mm-hmm. Um, you write interestingly about Uganda, which I know some things about. I, had a, I have a friend who set up uh, early Ugandan uh, networks. Okay. And I think you write mostly positively about hashtag Kony 2012. So if, yeah. okay. to remind people, he was the warlord who used children, soldiers, and terrible guy, and he was uh, before the docket of the world court. But when things really got rolling with him as an issue, I think the people who were mostly behind the meme or the hashtag were a little also behind the facts, and a lot of money was wasted probably, and I don't know, it just seemed like a big exercise in possibly good intentions, but nothing actually coming from it. I look at it, I look back at it as more of a... Um, kind of an indictment of the limits of this sort of hashtag activism or meme uh, use. But what do you think? Yeah, I think it's a good example of what you just said of uh, of contextlessness, right? Yeah. That, that the internet um, and meme culture can oversimplify to the point of reducing context. And especially when we're talking about an international context where a country like Uganda, I doubt most people can, can really point it out on a map, right? Yeah. Uh, most people in the West, I should say. Um, that uh, it's very easy to amplify a narrative or a trope that um, that oversimplifies a very complex situation. And so in the book, I, I dive into that one and another hashtag that appeared that very same year, um, which was hashtag Uganda is not Spain. Yeah. And the reason I, I look at those two is that one came from people in Uganda, um, Uganda is not Spain, in response to an oversimplification. Um, the prime minister of Spain uh, during the economic crisis had, had texted, um, I believe, his finance minister um, and said, you know, don't worry, it'll be okay. Spain is not Uganda. 
when word got out, uh, Ugandans took to social media, um, led by Rosebel Kagamira, who's a journalist there, and I started tweeting out facts about why Uganda is is not Spain. Yeah, yeah. So, they were doing a little better than Spain <laughs> by many measures. Yeah, yes. that's right. So so you had this uh, these contrasting these two hashtags as a case study and how um, both um, you can oversimplify a story from the outside. Um, but then also how that oversimplification can then be challenged through hashtag culture um, by by the very people affected by that oversimplification. Other than getting into and knowing as much as you can about the underlying facts, were there hallmarks? Could someone look at those memes and say, you know, Coney 2012 raises some red flags, whereas there are hallmarks, there are aspects to the Uganda is not Spain trend that maybe spoke more positively about it? Yeah, yeah this gets to the other thing about meme cultures, understanding where they're coming from. Right. Right. And and so when you dig into Coney 2012, you see that the, the organization is coming from San Diego. And yes, they've done work in Uganda, but um, it's a very different perspective than a, a literally journalists in Uganda who are who are trying to respond to international discourse. And so um, so I do think you still need to dive in. You still need to understand the context. Um, and I spoke with Ugandan researchers to prep for that chapter because I, I certainly don't fully understand the context. But as a starting point, it's, uh, it's again goes back to the networks. Where are they circulating? Who is pushing the story? and uh, what might be their uh, motivations. And in Uganda, it's not cats, it's goats that are the, the cute animal, the go-to. That appears to be, yeah, that's right. I uh, chatted um, with uh, folks from Urban Legend, Kampala, it's a humor site, and, <laughs> and Ugandan youth in Kampala, the capital. And I was showing them, you know, the cats, right? I was showing them cat, cat memes from China and the United States, and they said, oh, that's, that's interesting. They, they didn't really respond. And over time, I started to realize, well, I was, I was there for three, three months, and uh, I did see cats around. But I saw a lot of amazing goats, and they're very funny creatures. And so I was like, oh, that's why they like goats so much. They are, but I've read a pretty compelling explanation of the appeal of cats is that they're ambush predators. So mm. they have quick jump actions, mm-hmm. and this is really good for a two- or three-second video. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if goats are that quick. Well, have you seen the fainting goat memes? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> they, they, are quirky they go cre- down in a hurry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they are quirky creatures. They are. Yeah. Do you know what I think is going to save us from the memes? What will save us? Podcasts. Podcasts. They're the... Yeah. Opposite in so many ways. Mm, They're mm. great for dissent. Mm -hmm. You get into... You get into uh, disagreements, but yeah. in a in a good way. Yeah, yeah. You could serve a niche community. Right. They're complex. Yeah. Also, you can ignore it, but then you're not actually imbibing the information. You know, like right. with memes, right. 12 could flash across your vision and maybe you absorb two with podcasts. You go in and you <laughs> seek it out. I think, yeah. I think podcasts will save us all. And I, <laughs> I would agree with that. And and the fact that we can have this in-depth conversation, right, that it's not about the sound bites; It's about the, the dialogue. Yeah. Um, but how do you get attention for the podcast? How do how do people come to learn about it? Um, in so many you need, ways. You need a crazy uh, cat video. You need, you need yeah. a cat video, right? You need, you need a goat fainting. Yep. You <laughs> need some way to, to engage people and attract them to that conversation. So if we think of them as the beginning of a discourse, um, in some ways, they, in some, maybe they can be helpful. And Chaumina is the author of Memes to Movements. Great last name, by the way. On point. Thank you. Mina, memes. <laughs> Mi- I'll show Mima, as sometimes Mima. people say. <laughs> yeah. Memes to Movements, how the world's most viral media is changing social protests and power. Thanks for coming in. Thank you so much. And now the spiel. Did you see what happened to Michaela Schifrin yesterday in Beijing? Maybe not. Ratings are down more than half compared to the 2018 Winter Olympics. These Olympics should get, I don't know, 30 million viewers on a weekend. But from Saturday to Sunday, the Beijing Games drew an average of 13 and a half million viewers. 
But if you were watching last night, you witnessed a shocking sight. Michaela Schifrin, greatest skier in the world, focal point of NBC's Olympic coverage, co-star with dinosaurs in a commercial that doesn't make much sense, except as an exercise in attempted iconography, she skied out. Means she missed a turn, thereby disqualifying herself in the slalom. The subtext of shock was unmistakable, especially because on NBC it was text. The important first run of the slalom to set the tone. He, oh, no! You have got to be kidding me. Shocker right off the bat. Didn't even get into the course. And what Schifrin did next was to sit on the course, just sit there for about 25 minutes. The fact of Schifrin's DQ was astonishing. The figure of Schifrin sitting there was compelling. We could not look away, though it was clear some part of us wanted to. The NBC announcers were, to my eyes and ears, maximally respectful. There wasn't a whiff of condemnation or criticism, not a scintilla of blame being hurled at Schifrin, who was, of course, the golden girl central to NBC's marketing, but also, if stated plainly, an athlete who had failed, which is part of athletics. If it weren't, there wouldn't be achievement. There wouldn't be tension. There wouldn't be competition. There'd be no Olympics. This is, I think, a representative comment from the NBC coverage. This is just hard to believe. It's going to be way up there on a list of Olympic disappointments. Shiprin still down on the snow. Lindsey Vaughn, most likely the greatest woman skier in history and now an NBC analyst, offered her thoughts of the events. She said they did not detract from Shiprin's historic greatness or legacy. I didn't hear anywhere the word failure attached to Schifrin. I did not hear any dismissiveness or terms like choke. But still, there was Schifrin, her arms cradling her knees, her downcast, helmeted head vying for our attention. Some viewers insisted we should all look away. Quote, the camera staying on Michaela Schifrin for this long after the media putting extensive pressure on her prior to the games shows they didn't learn shit from Simone Biles. That one got almost 4,000 likes. Another viewer tweeted, me watching Michaela Schifrin after that run, I hope that girl isn't too hard on herself. The announcers, what a mistake, what a disappointment. This will live in infamy for the rest of time. We have literally not moved the needle on mental health at all. That one got over 5,000 likes. But the announcers didn't use words like infamy. Also, Schifrin didn't withdraw, citing mental health issues. She missed a turn. Of course, psychology plays a big role in all sports. Schifrin even said so in her remarks after leaving the course. My perception is that the vast majority of those of us watching had our hearts go out to Michaela Schifrin. NBC showing her sitting there was not invasive. It was moving. And also, factually, it was conveying what actually was going on. If viewers were moved, I'd say they were moved in the right direction towards compassion. Yet, the angriest tweets got the most engagement. The two I read weren't from famous people or anyone who should garner a large audience. They were from the angriest people or the people maybe who were angry earliest. And they were the most engaged with, liked, responded to tweets except for one from Schifrin herself. I think it speaks to anger and needing to have an enemy, needing to make an enemy of NBC's cameras, and it all seems fairly misguided to me. And yeah, I know you can find angry people on the internet about everything, and I know the internet isn't real life, but of course it's real life. I read those posts. I had real thoughts and feelings about those posts. You're hearing about them now, feeling something. 
posts like that or how we learn about what's going on in the world. And furthermore, even if you're not on Twitter, Twitter becomes non-Twitter. The New York Times initial coverage of the event was to cover the event headline. Michaela Schifrin, still without a medal, fails to finish in her best event. And a picture of the gutted Schifrin sitting on the side of the course. The print version of that was Schifrin falters in slalom, falling out of second straight race. It's true, accurate, economical. Soon there was another New York Times story on Schifrin with this as the Twitter tease, NewYorkTimes.com. NBC lingered on Schifrin after her fall, drawing anger. Many compared the moment to the treatment of Simone Biles, who tweeted in support of Schifrin. The drawing anger on social media article was so similar to the Schifrin fails to finish article. They had almost the same lead. They both had quotes from Schifrin. They both mentioned that Simone Biles tweeted her support. But here was the paragraph in the drawing anger article. Some on social media criticized NBC for keeping a camera focused on Schifrin as she sat contemplating her performance. Shortly after her disqualification, the gymnast Simone Biles tweeted in support of her. That was the entirety of the Drawing Anger article's discussion of the anger that was drawn. It's not journalism malpractice. It's not the media egregiously dwelling on a phenomenon that it invented. But it's emblematic. This, Michaela Schifrin's failure to qualify, and who knows if she'll even ski the Super G, that is an open question. It'll all be one of the biggest stories of the games, no matter how it shakes out. Years ago, this would be what we would call a water cooler moment. The Simone Biles story was, everyone in America had an opinion on that. And like Simone Biles, I would say this story inspired near unanimity of publicly expressed opinion. And it was humanity. Humanity was the expressed opinion. The ugliness of people's reactions weren't in the actual reactions, but in what many rallying around Schifrin assumed would be the reactions. Take Schifrin's boyfriend, and this was included in the most popular tweet I saw on it, the one that Michaela Schifrin herself put out there. There was the picture of her sitting there, and he wrote about it. When you look at this picture, you could make up so many statements, meanings, and thoughts. Most of you probably look at it and say, she has lost it. She can't handle the pressure. Or what happened? Which makes me frustrated, because all I see is a top athlete doing what a top athlete does. It's part of the game, and it happens. Look, I haven't done a survey of every attention-seeking talk show host or every commenter on every online article. I know someone out there who has a Twitter handle with three flags and an eagle or someone who is part of the Blaze Network is going to say something dismissive. But my goodness, this was a story that showed that the vast majority of American society who cared were in fact caring, were kind, forgiving, uplifting guided by something like the better angels of their nature. Yet the most prominent reactions were about how cruel and heartless human beings can be. Michaela missed a gate. Far too many people are missing a truth about the predominance of cruelty versus kindness on this one. And that is it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Joel Patterson. The assistant producer, it's Corey Wara. Michelle Pesca copy edits the Gist's public-facing properties. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, check out advertisecast.com slash the gist. Umpru depru dupru, and thanks for listening.